0: So that, that about does it for announcements. Uh, if you will now at this time, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. We're going to continue in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 13, and I will read for us from verses 21 through verse 35. So if you will, stand with me as we give attention to God's holy word. John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, "'It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it.' So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, "'What you are going to do, do quickly.'" Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, "'Buy what we need for the feast.'" or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you.
1: Lord, you give us in this passage that we can know if we are your disciples. <clears throat> and a way that we know that is if we love one another. Lord, thank you for your word that directs and inclines our heart toward not only head knowledge, but also it puts leather on our, our hearts to, to walk and to live together under the banner of your love. So, Lord, may the crossing be a people that love you first and foremost with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that love that you have shed abroad in our hearts is then given to others around us, where we live, work, and play, to our friends, to our family, to our co-workers, to our classmates, to those we know well and to those that we do not know well. Love is the mark of your disciples. So may it mark us this morning. Lord, we also want to pray for a new community a new community uh, that we support and, and, and we help in, in Brick, New Jersey, the new church plant of Redeemer. Lord, be with Daniel and his team and, and those people as they start a new covenant community in Jersey that needs you so desperately. And let them, their heartbeats, their vibe that they give out on that in that uh, place be one of love. That the gospel ran in their hearts. Let them be controlled in, uh, by your spirit, informed by your word. And may they do it in gospel community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> well, good, still in 2018. How are we doing on our resolutions? Doing well? Getting after it? I hope so. As Rich read, we're going to be in John 13, 21 through 35. And I've entitled the message, what is your life known for? i got a question for you. When, how do people know you? What are you known for in your circles of influence? If we took a poll of your friends, your circle of friends uh, that know you best, how would they describe you? What would be some of the words that they would use to describe you? Or even yet, as the text says today, it says this, that by this all people will know so it's just not the people that you know very well, it's the people that you're just acquainted with, that kind of know you. How would they describe you? What would be your reputation in that circle of influence? Hopefully somewhere in there we all would say, the, the people would say their evaluation of you would be the characteristics of the Christian faith, of the gospel, the fruits of the Spirit, stuff like that, man, you're sacrificial, um, you're giving, you're patient. You're honest. You're a hard worker. You're kind. You're joyful. You're humble. You're servant. And also, hopefully somewhere in there, they would say that you love people. That you're loving. See, loving people, loving one another, has been a defining characteristic of the Christian faith since it began. Disciples over the centuries. How? People know that we are disciples of Christ is by our love. Tertullian was an early defender of the faith, and he said that it wasn't a, a particular thing back in his day. It wasn't a theological topic or a certain argument that won people over, that drew people to Christ. What drew people to Christ in Tertullian's day and in our day is what? Is how they loved one another. Not only by word, but also by deed. Quote, this is what he said. It is mainly the deed of love so noble that led many to put a brand upon us. So when people would say Christian, it says, this is the brand. Think livestock that they get branded. This is the brand. This is the, the, the sign on which was stamped on Christians back in his day. See, they say, see how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. This is what marked the Christian community in Tertullian's day. And is what marks us even in our day, and it's what marked Jesus and his disciples in their day. Christians were effective and will always be effective in bringing people to Christ when they are, in word and deed, loving one another. Last week I asked you to take a New Year's resolution with me. Do you guys remember that? There were three things that we were going to be resolved about in 2018. What were they? That we would be humble, that we would be servants, and this week that we would love, love one another. These were the foundational principles of Jesus' new covenant community, which he is starting in John chapter 13. His church and the leaders of, this, of his church, and this should be at the forefront of our minds this morning as well, that we are a people known for our love. So let's dive into John 13, the rest of John 13. First, we see the opposite characteristic of a disciple of Christ seen in Judas, one who is a betrayer and walks in darkness. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Talking to his 12 disciples in the upper room. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. So last week we looked at the first half of John 13, this unbelievable, this jaw-dropping scene of Jesus in his humility taking on the form of a servant, the identity of a servant, bending down, stripping off his garment, and washing his disciples' dirty feet. The humility that he had led to service, and it was an incredible scene. Even Judas the one that he knew would be responsible for Jesus' arrest, trial, and end up crucifixion. And what we see in verse 21 is we we see now the humanity of Jesus even, even more on display. Not only as a humble servant, but now we see it as he is troubled. He is deeply moved with a holy agitation and sorrow. It's the same word we looked at when we looked at John 11:33, when referring to Mary when she was weeping over her brother's death, Lazarus. She was weeping, and when Jesus saw Mary weeping, it says that he was deeply moved. Why? Here he's deeply moved because betrayal is a painful, painful thing, even for the Son of Man. It hurts. Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, he he broke bread with him, he lived life with him for three years. Jesus handpicked Judas to be in his original crew. And yet this man was going to betray him. And actually already has betrayed him. He is just putting the cherry on top right now. And when we read this text, when we read that Jesus was troubled because he knows someone in this room is going to betray Him, when we read this text, we feel it, don't we? We feel it. We feel the agitation in Jesus. We feel the, the troubling spirit in Jesus. Why? Because many of us have been betrayed as well. Many of us have felt betrayed by a friend, a, a family member, a spouse, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a co-worker. We know exactly what Jesus is feeling right now, because we have felt it. We know that betrayal, again, produces this agitation, anger, and sorrow. The thought, the thought of a close friend, family member, spouse, meeting with others behind your back, conspiring against you to hurt you, to betray you, scheming on how that might be done, involved in making a secret and underhanded plan against you. This is what betrayal is. And the thought of that when it comes to execution, when it hits us from the blind side, it's devastating, isn't it? Everyone in here understands that feeling. Obviously, the the best illustration that I can give is from Braveheart, right? William Wallace, when he was betrayed by the nobles, and in particular, Robert the Bruce. You guys remember that scene? When he finds out that he knocks off, takes off Robert the Bruce's helmet, and there he is, and, and, and William Wallace is about ready to you know, take him out, but his betrayal absolutely knocks William Wallace to the ground. He's devastated. It's a tough picture, and this is what happens to Jesus. He is devastated, he is troubled because he knows Judas is about to betray him. Then we go on to verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, we believe that to be John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, was reclining at the table with Jesus' side, at Jesus' side. And so was Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Who Peter wants to know who wants to betray him? And so the disciple John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord. Who is it? And Jesus answered to John, It is he who I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So John actually gives us some incredible detail of what's taking place in the upper room in this Last Supper and who is about to betray him. He goes into great detail um, of what's happening over this Passover meal. But if we want to really grasp this picture and get a right picture in our mind's eye, we have to understand the seating chart. We have to understand how they were sitting and reclining at the table. Many of us probably, when we think of the Last Supper, we think of this painting, right? This incredible painting of Leonardo da Vinci. Well, it's a great painting, it's a phenomenal painting, except it's not accurate at all what was taking place at the Last Supper. And yet, this is what we probably think about when we think about the Last Supper. This is what we think, hey, this is a seating chart there at this long, straight table, and and this is how it looked. Well, no, this is not how it looked. So, sorry, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, right? If you want to start something to discredit Christianity, you might want to use a more biblically accurate view of the Last Supper. And so let me describe the scene, what probably took place, and what it actually probably looked at. First, Jesus and his disciples sat at a very low table, probably only about 18 inches high above the ground. And so there were not chairs there, and they were probably in a U-shape, like a horseshoe, with Jesus kind of the host sitting at the pinnacle of that U-shape. And they were reclining or probably laying down on cushions and pillows. And probably how they were reclining was probably on their left forearm. So they would be reclining on their left forearm with their feet facing away from the table and the food, and then their faces around in this U-shaped um, place, seating chart. And so why would you lean on your left hand, uh, left forearm? Because most, most people back then are right-handed. So it was very easy for Jesus to take the food, dip it, and then pass it on using their right hand. They were more coordinated with their right hand. And so you can picture them laying on their, in their left forearm, some on their shoulders, on their back, uh, again, facing the table and their feet off. And so this probably means where was John in this seating chart? If Jesus is at the end, it says that John leaned on his chest, on Jesus' chest. That probably means as Jesus was laying here, John was on his right side here because he would lean back onto Jesus' chest. And so Jesus, uh, John leans back onto Jesus' chest and is like, hey, who is it? Because you know Peter, Peter can't sit silent. I'm surprised Peter just didn't stand up and say, who is it? Which one is it, right? But instead he's giving baseball signs on, you know, who, who, who is it, John? Ask Jesus who it is. And so Peter is somewhere where John and him can have eye contact. So if Jesus is on his right, the question is, well, where is Judas? Because we know that it says in verse 26 that Jesus said, it is to one whom I give this piece of bread when I dipped it. And again, John is being very detailed here. So we don't, we don't say that Jesus dipped it, he got up out of his seat, he went and he gave it to G, you know, Judas. It doesn't say that Jesus threw it to Judas, right? It says that Jesus dipped it and he probably gave it to Judas on his left. This is what would also happen. The host would be the initiator of where the food would go. He would start the process. And so John on his right, leaning into Jesus, hey, who is it going to define? Judas on his left, Jesus dips the morsel in and gives it to Judas. So that's probably the accurate seating chart in scene that we have here. Now there's something that's incredibly important and astonishing before they even get down. How does Jay, uh, how does John and how does Judas get next to Jesus? Because these were two as uh, as many commentators believe, these were two um um seats of honor, the one on the right and the one on the left of the host. So Jesus reached out to John and Judas. And say, hey, John, I want you to sit on my right hand. Hey, Judas, I would like to see you on my left side. Knowing what Jesus knows about Judas, he still puts him in a seat of honor. It's almost as if Jesus is loving Judas and is still trying to finally reach out to Judas. He knows what Judas is about to do. It's an incredible act of love. For Jesus to have him on the left side, and of course we know that Jesus is working all this this out. He is sovereign. He is in control of the whole situation, and so he asks them. And this is what I love about this scene: uh, John, the one whom Jesus loves, as he claims, which is a good claim. It has him. The scene is leaning into Jesus. He's he's moving towards Jesus. And Judas, probably knowing that Jesus knows who's betrayed him since he just asked a question, is probably leaning away from Jesus. So the one that loves Jesus, has been washed by Jesus, has been bathed by Jesus, the believer is leaning into him, and Judas, the one who has not been, is not clean, is leaning away. How about you this morning? Which way are you Leaning? Are you like John leading into Jesus? Who is it? Is it me? Who, who is it? Or are you like Judas leaning away from Jesus this morning? Jesus has invited you to the table. Which way are you leaning? verse 27 After he gives and has taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That is Judas. and Jesus said it, and what you're going to do now, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, um, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give him something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out and it was night. This is a a weird scene. Satan entered into Judas. Uh, I believe this is talking about Satan literally possessed Judas at this moment. But the reason why Satan could do that is because Judas opened his heart to that. He was leaning away, walking away from Jesus. He was not a believer. A believer cannot be possessed by Satan or a demon. Satan, this also tells about how important this is because Satan is just a created angel. He can only be in one place at one time. He's not um, omnipresent everywhere like God. He can only be in one place at one time. And he's here at this moment, at this scene, in the upper room, and he entered into Judas. Why? Because Judas was open. He was not a believer. This is a scary thought if you're in here and you don't have the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. A Christian, when we repent in Christ and trust in Christ, we get the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in us. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That was not Judas. It's clear in John 13 when even Jesus says, He does not belong to him. It is The one who is, betrays me is not clean. So this is a scary scene. Satan into him now again, Judas has already left Jesus already betrayed Jesus. Satan is just make sure he continues through with it. the plan of the sovereign king it 's also very significant this phrase, "It was night, it was night." You see that at the end of verse thirty. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. We know as we 've been going through and walking through the Gospel of John that John loves light and darkness. He contrasts that. Um, we we know that Jesus again touches on that in the opening words of John and John chapter one it says this and in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome them John eight twelve Jesus says I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light and this is what we see happening in John Judas it was night he walked into darkness. John led into the light. Therefore, to walk in the light is to be led by Jesus, which leads to life. And the one who walks in darkness, who walks in the night, walks away from Jesus and life. There's a great practical question that happened in verse 21 when Jesus says, or practical application for us, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And then verse 22 says, the disciples looked at one another, wondering who it might be. This is a sobering statement. And it causes disciples to quickly do a quick examination of their own hearts. Do we walk in the light or do we walk in the darkness? Do we lean into Jesus or do we lean away from Jesus? And I think it would be a great practical application for us this morning as well. Where are you leaning? Do you lean into Jesus, away from Jesus? Are you walking in the light? Or are you walking in the darkness? Examine your life this morning. Examine your heart this morning to see where you stand, with who you stand Judas or the rest of his disciples. That takes us to the second principle the foundational characteristics of a disciple of Christ, as demonstrated by Jesus himself, and that is love 31 through 35. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What's the point of this verse? Glory, right? We know that. When we see that word over and over again, he's saying something. And so what we read is that the Father and Son glorify one another. Why? Because this is the most important topic, attribute, Characteristic of this story and of God. Everything revolves around Him and His glory. I was a a young, about 20 plus years ago, when I was just getting into ministry, I was being mentored by this, uh, old presbyterian pastor just an awesome going to study you smell the you, you know smell the smoke and the from his little pipe you know and he sat me down and and he was like all right son i got a, the first question he asked me what is the most important characteristic attribute theological topic about the bible about the gospel what is what is this thing all about and i as a young prideful man said the sovereignty of god and he said no soup for you you know no it's about the glory of god that's what this book is about it's about god and his glory so this is what we see we see jesus glorified the father how did he glorify the father he was obedient to the call that he was given to the point of death he was obedient he was faithful he was committed to his father's call on his life all the way up even to the end of being betrayed, being arrested, being beaten, being crucified on the cross to death. He was obedient. He honored the Father through that. And then it says that God the Father will glorify His Son. How did God the Father glorify His Son? He glorified Him in the resurrection. He glorified Him in the ascension. He glorifies Him in the coronation. Putting Jesus to the right hand of the Father. He is the King. And so what we see here is we see God the Father glorifying the Son, God the Son glorifying the Father. Why? Because this is what this book is about. It's about God's glory and the redeeming story of Christ. Now, I said last week that this uh, seeing this beginning in John thirteen is the beginning of the new covenant community. Some believe it begins in Acts chapter one. I think it just becomes more, um, it grows, it puts more uh, detailed on the community. But I think the community has started here in the upper room with Jesus and His twelve. Again, this is the beginning of His private ministry. The world is now on the outside. It's Jesus and His twelve, and especially now that Judas is gone, it is just Jesus and his disciples. Everyone in this room is a Christian, is a believer, is the leaders of the church. And we see this is emphasized in verse 33, where Jesus says, little children, yet a little while while I'm with you, you will seek me. And and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you where I'm going, you cannot come yet. You have some work to do. You have a mission to fulfill. Just like I fulfilled my father's mission, now you have to fulfill the mission that I'm giving you. And that is to be leaders of my church. And he finished the sentence in verse 38. You will follow me afterwards. You will, but not yet. So we see here that Jesus emphasized this new covenant community by calling these 12 men, these 12 leaders, his little children. Why is that so significant? Because Jesus nowhere else in the Gospels ever called his disciples this little children until now this is the only place where we see jesus refer to his disciples as his children and guess who's not there judas he ain't there it's just now jesus and his boys that's who's in this room this leaders new covenant community John loves this phrase, little children. He uses it in 1 John 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we shall be called children of God. And so we are. When you believe in Christ. You are child of the King. That is your identity. So Jesus here has these 11 men in himself. And he's about to give some of the most important fundamental truths for his church. We call this the upper room discourse. Judas, Judas is on the outside. He's walking in darkness right now with the the Sanhedrin. Those plotting against Jesus to bring about the final execution of his betrayal. And yet we have the contrast of Jesus with his disciples. And he is about to bathe them in incredible light over the next several chapters. These precious truths he's about to teach them, not not only get them through Jesus' death, but also carry them on to build his church. These are the principles in which Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are going to have to build and put your life on these principles. They're going to have to consume you from what I'm about to give you, the new mission to love God and to make disciples. This is what you give your lives to, and these are the foundational principles of what you build on. And not only you, disciples, but throughout the centuries, that people that are called by my name will also build their lives, give their lives to this mission, to love God and to make disciples. So really, the next several weeks, months, you and for me, Sunday mornings are going to be incredibly important. Because Jesus is going to teach us, just as He taught His disciples, this is the foundation, the new covenant. These principles... So it's vital for you and for me to come and be here and to wrap our minds around the Word of God. John chapter 14 and 15 and 16. And finally, Jesus is going to pray over us in John chapter 17. Then John chapter 18, he gets arrested in the domino falls. So this is going to be incredibly important. So, so where do we begin? Verse 34. Verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The first thing we notice here is right off the bat, Jesus is giving us a command. He's giving us a command, not a suggestion, not, hey, when you get around to it, would you love one another? Not if, hey, when you feel like it, when you you feel like it, when it feels good, go ahead and love one another. But if you don't feel like it, don't worry about it, right? Not for you. No. It's a command. It's an emphatic order from the king of the universe. You, me, love one another. It's almost as if Jesus is not only giving this commandment to his disciples in his room, which he is, but can you almost feel like Jesus is staring at you from these scriptures right now? And he's speaking directly to you and to me. You love one another. You love one another. You and 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 you, you love one another. You guys feel that? I read that I'm like, oh, Jesus is like directing this towards me, and He is, as well as His disciples, love one another. The second thing we see, we notice it's a new commandment. Now, what do we mean by new? I mean the Old Testament had love in it. We we, we remember Leviticus 19, kind of the holiness chapters of the book, where it say. Leviticus 19, you want to learn how to live like an Israelite and honor God? Leviticus 19 is it. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, we say, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so then how is this new? We're to love one another. Well, he tells us, Jesus tells us in verse 34, so look again at verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. That's where it's new. Now we have a tangible, physical example found in Jesus. Jesus says, you love each other as I have loved you. This is where it is new. The newness of the command is we love like Jesus loved. That's how we are to love one another. So the the natural question is, well, how did Jesus love us? Well, we could spend all the rest of 2018, you know, going over that and spending every sermon and message on that day after day, night after night, talking about how Jesus has shown his love for us. Um, but we're only going to cover a handful, a couple, three. And then um, I would suggest that I had the awesome privilege of just spending, you know, this past couple of days of just thinking about, man, how has Jesus loved me? How has Jesus shown his love in the Gospels and in this book? And and I got to think and meditate and be bathed by the love of Christ. What a great exercise for you guys this week to think about how Jesus has shown his love to you. Because obviously we're not going to be exhaustive today. But think on the love of Christ in your life, how he's been faithful and loved you. Let me just give you a handful of how Jesus has loved us that popped into my mind first Jesus' love is personal. It's personal. We think of how the Gospel of John was was started in the very beginning. right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says in John 1.14, and the Word, Jesus, became what? Flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory full of grace and truth. We've seen it. Why could we see it? Because He was with us. He was with the disciples. He showed them. He walked with them. He talked with them. He broke bread with them. He weeped with them. He rode in a boat with them. You know, row, row, roll, roll your boat gently down the stream. They might even sing that song. Who knows, right? I mean, Jesus was intimately involved with them. He taught them. He celebrated with them the truth and the grace of God. Jesus is personal. It's a relationship. It's It's tangible. We, we can see Christ's love. We can hear Christ's love through these words. We can smell it and touch it and, and taste it. He is not distance. He is here. He gave us his very word. He wrote us a letter called the Bible to communicate to us directly as a king, as a good shepherd, as a father, as a friend. That's how he communicates to us. He understands the peaks and valleys of life because he walked On this earth as a man, was tempted in every way, just as we were, yet he was without sin. So he can meet us where we're at in life, the highs, the lows. He can meet us mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually. Why? Because he was here. He was flesh. He dwelt among us. So Jesus' love is, is personal. It's so personal, he uses this description of love to describe his relationship with his people. Remember when we talked about um, Lazarus, when Mary and Martha sent for Jesus, and he said, hey, Jesus, the one you what? Love is sick. How personal is that? Uh, John, right here, tells us in what verse 23, um, the disciple that you love. Jesus was so intimate in their life that they were described as those that he loved. They felt his love personally, intimately. And so do we. That, that title that Jesus loves, the one that you love, remember we talked about that, is not, is just not confined to, to them. It's confined to you and me. We talked about prayer. Remember we talked about prayer. Hey, this is Aaron, Jesus. Remember, the one that you love, the one that you died for the one that you showed your love for me. How awesome is that? Jesus' love is personal to everyone in here who has repented and trusted in Him. Secondly, Jesus' love produces something in us, it accomplishes something, um, namely salvation and faith. Salvation and growth, and faith, and justification, and sanctification, and and all these other things, redemption, and reconciliation, and justification, and propitiation, I mean, all these things, it it produces something, Jesus' love, for His people and for us. Remember, He told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Remember, He told um, uh, the woman at the well in John 4, hey, if you thirst... You come and drink from me, the living water, and you will never thirst again. In, in Nicodemus chapter 11, he told the disciples, Hey, Lazarus you know, is sick, and I'm glad when he died, we weren't there for your sake. Why? So that you may believe. So when you see the Son of Man breathe life into a dead man's body, you will believe that I am the Christ. God's love, Christ's love, produces something in us, namely salvation. And then throughout our lives, it builds our faith. Now, we obviously, salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one that chooses. He's the one that justifies uh, by His Spirit. Um, We don't save anyone. God saves people. Jesus saves individuals, but He uses us. We are the means. We are the ambassadors of his message, the message of salvation, the gospel. Uh, People get saved because they hear the gospel. The gospel is good news. News is proclaimed. It's declared. It's preached. And Jesus uses you and me to do that. Romans chapter 10 says, hey, how are they going to hear? How are they going to be saved if no one preaches the gospel to them? How blessed are the feet of those who bring or preach the good news. So we can love others when we proclaim the gospel. Think of Jesus in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. just crosses over the social barriers, the ethnic barrier, the gender barrier, the political barrier, and proclaims the gospel to this woman. And we believe that she believes. He shared the gospel. This is the love, and it's this love that should propel you and me to do the same with those in our circles of influence. That we love others as Jesus has loved us. That The gospel message produces something in us, namely salvation and faith. This is what Jesus loves, produce. So it's personal, it produces accomplished from us, and finally it is patient. Jesus' love is patient. It is long-suffering. You can almost feel this. How many times do we read in the gospels that the disciples didn't understand, Right? I mean, Jesus couldn't lay it out any clearer. The disciples did not understand. How many times did Thomas doubt in those three years? How many times did uh, James and John want to call fire down from heaven to smoke people that disbelieved, right? I, I bet you it was more than one time. We only have one account in there, but I bet you it was more than one time. How many times did Peter over and over again stumble and put his foot in his mouth? How many times do we read about their weakness, their doubts, their stubbornness of of people like Andrew and Nathaniel and Mary and Martha and Nicodemus and the woman at the well? We can go on and on and on. And yet, Jesus loves them with a long-suffering, with a patience that is unsurpassed. As much as we frustrate Jesus, he has a well of love and a well of patience that we can never exhaust. Isaiah 42 verse 3 describing Jesus' ministry some 700 years earlier prophesying about Jesus God's servant says this about God's Jesus' patience it says Jesus this is a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench this describes the patience of Jesus for you and me one commentator says this about this verse we should treasure this patient love. We should treasure it more than all the money in our bank account. That's how precious this truth is. That he will not break a bruised reed or faintly burning wick. Jesus is patient with you and me. So think about that in your life. Who in your life today do you need to show Loving patience too, just as Jesus showed it to you. For this week, this is how we are to love. This is how Jesus loved us, with patience. A love that produces something and a love that is personal. Now we could go on and on. We could talk about Jesus' love that was a sacrificial love, right? But God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We could we could talk about that. We could talk about Jesus' love as it's it's giving. Jesus' love forgives. Jesus' love uh, causes us to pray. Jesus' love bears burdens. It speaks truth. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It never fails. And we can go on and on and on. This week, meditate on Jesus' love towards you so that you can extend it to others. This is how Jesus loves us. Therefore, his command is that we love others just as he's loved us. Now, some of you are saying right now, and maybe all of us are saying right now, it's like, I can't love like Jesus. Uh, Jesus loved perfectly, yes. Um, Jesus was God, yes. Jesus was man, yes. But that's where it gives us hope. Jesus was man. We are human like him. And, and just as Jesus was human, he obeyed. Now, again, we're not going to be perfect like Jesus, but we still have the ability to live out this command. Why? Because Jesus has given us this ability. First, He gives us the command. Wherever He gives us the command, he, never, he always gives us the ability to obey the command. He never withholds that from us. Romans 5.5 5 says this, The love of God has been poured out where? In our hearts. God has poured His love into your hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. Therefore, we can love like Jesus loved because He has given us His love. He has poured it into your heart and my heart. We have the capacity, the sufficiency to fulfill this command and to fill it, what's the word I'm looking for? Awesomely. There we go. It's not even a word, right? To fulfill it above and beyond what we think we are capable of. There's going to be a point where it's like, I can't can't love my wife anymore. And yet, the Lord's going to put more love into my heart. And I'm going to be able to love her more the Lord has poured more than a sufficient amount of love into our hearts to fulfill this command. And so it also means that when we do not love, it is not because we don't have the ability. It's because we're being disobedient. We're being disobedient. Because God has given us the ability, so we choose disobedience. And when we do that, we're walking away from Jesus and we start to walk down in darkness. But when we do fulfill this commandment, we are now walking in the light. And Jesus is moving and working and blessing and giving us joy in this fulfillment of this command. Therefore, as a disciple of Jesus, as one who has the Holy Spirit that indwells you, as the one who has His Word to inform and direct our steps, as one who has the love of God shed abroad in your heart, in my heart, there should not be anyone in your life that is starving for love. Amen? If you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Christ, this should mark you. And there should not be anyone in your circle of influence that is starving for love. And they, if they are, we need to repent and ask God to you know, give us again the measure of love that we need to go and to love those in our circles of influence beginning with our family, beginning with our friends, our coworkers, our schoolmates, the person at the bank, the person at the grocery store. Wherever we go, we should be giving love. People should be feeling love. Because this is where a disciple of Christ is. We are lovers. Lovers of people. And in particular, lovers of one another in this community. First and foremost, we give our love to those that are here, in this body, those who are Christian. We love one another, and then it extends outward. And finally, thirdly, this love produces something. It produces proof that you are a disciple of Christ. It produces proof that God has washed you. You are clean. This is a fruit of what it means to be a disciple, that you're a lover, that I'm a lover. John thirteen thirty-five. by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you what? Love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. You see, there's a reason why we do scatter nights in our life group. I know sometimes it's hard to understand what a scatter night is um, in our life group. So we have gather nights where we come together and we open up God's word and we we uh, uh, encourage one another and speak the truth to one another and we grow in God's word. And then we have these scatter. That's where we want to go outside of the, the Christian community, invite those in our circles of influence that do not know Jesus. We want them to invite them in. We want them to rub shoulders with other Christians. Now, most of us think it's a time off, right? Let's just be honest in here. Who saying, oh, scatter night, okay, I'm going to take off, right? We do that. But this is what Jesus is saying. It's at this point, this is a practical application of why we do scatter nights, so we can take the body of Christ and rub shoulders with those that don't know Jesus, and they see how we love one another. They see how we love one another. This is what I love about the crossing. Almost everyone in here, most of the people that come to the crossing have come because of a relationship, because they see how we love one another. They hear the stories about how we love one another and serve one another, how we support one another, rejoice with one another, how we give to one another. You guys have an incredible testimony and the reason why the crossing is still around some you know going on 8 years is because of this principle we understand this we understand god's love towards us it's our vertical relationship and we want to love god and then also we know that we are called to give away his love and be examples of his love so let's continue to be intentional in 2018 and continue to love each other as Jesus has loved us. This is the New Year's resolution. We want to be resolved in this resolution in 2018 to continue what you guys have been doing. You've been loving God, and you've also been loving one another. And let's continue to do that so we can continue to be used by God as his ambassadors to grow his church for his glory and for our joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great passage, Lord. New commandment you've given us, that we love one another. Lord, uh, many of us have been doing that, and we thank you for that. And we can do this because you first have moved in our hearts. So I pray if there is anyone here that has not experienced the love of God, that they would recognize that they're walking in the way of Judas, leading away from Judas because their sin was pulling them away but because of your great love for us that you you died to bring us back in. And Lord, I would say that they would see their sin, they would repent of their sin, and they would throw themselves on the love and the mercy of Jesus, what you have died, did for them, that you were their substitute and died for their sins on the cross, that they would repent and trust in that. And for us that have, let this truth be renewed in our hearts, that we don't withhold love from anyone in our circle of influence because you have not withhold it from us. And let that be a, 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 a propel us to love one another because your love has been shed abroad in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.